0: Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Doing all right? All right. Good to see you. Um, If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Alan Pittman. I am the senior pastor here and one of the elders, and we are absolutely thrilled that you are here worshiping with us today in this room, in this building, and also online. Uh, We're glad that you chose to worship with us today. We are as a church family walking through the New Testament this year and we're almost to the end. We're actually in the last book of the New Testament right now which is the book of Revelation And then we're going to actually go back after we finish Revelation and go back to Matthew because we have not read Matthew yet this year. So we've got another week or two here in the book of Revelation. Then we'll jump back to Matthew and finish out the year strong going through God's word together. And so we are in Revelation. We're calling this series Glory because uh, the book of Revelation is all about the glory of God. And on the back of your worship guide, you'll find the sermon notes. And uh, you'll see that today's message is called The Glory of God in warning and encouragement. We'll be looking at Revelation chapter 14 and you've got the sermon notes there. And then at the very bottom, you'll see the reading guide for this week. We'll be jumping into chapter 16 through 20 of the book of Revelation uh, this week. So I, I wanted to start this morning By kind of just reminding us where the book of Revelation is going. So if you've got a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open that Bible. Whether it's a hardbound Bible or it's on your phone. uh, The good thing about a hardbound Bible is you get to see it, hold it, touch it, mark notes and all of that. The bad thing about a digital is if you're like me, uh, you can chase rabbits and, and... kind of be distracted. But whichever route you go with, please open God's Word. If you don't have um, a Bible handy, there should be a Bible near you in a seat uh, either right there in front of you or behind you or even your own seat. If you don't own a Bible or you need a Bible at the house, feel free to take that home with you and that'll be our gift to you. Uh, We'll be looking at Revelation chapter 14, but before we get there, I'm going to read a portion of the very first verse of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, I'm not going to read every word, but it, it says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ and it's to show us the things that must soon take place. And so the book of Revelation, lots of different ideas of what scholars think about the timing of it, but there's no doubt that the book of Revelation shows us what's going to take place in the future and how God is going to bring his people, the church, to be in his presence in heaven as we sang about and as Howard prayed about that we'll be before the very throne of God worshiping him. But but in this vision or revelation that John gets and writes down, there are several things uh, that, that's going on. We're seeing that this vision takes place between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. A moment ago, Ricky said that we're going to be celebrating Advent. Advent just simply means coming or arrival. And as we head towards Christmas, we're reflecting on the two advents of Jesus. His original coming, when he was born there in, in, in I to say Nazareth, he lived in Nazareth, he was born there in Bethlehem, and how he came and put on flesh about 2000 years ago. But we also look forward in anticipation of his second coming when he'll take us to be with his with him in in heaven. And so so in the book of Revelation we have everything from Jesus resurrection up to his second coming. We also have in the book of Revelation a vision of God's ultimate final complete victory over satan he won the victory when jesus was raised from the dead but this life continues and we see that all it will come all of it will come to a culminating conclusion with god being the victor and then we also see in the book of revelation over and over and over and over again and in the text again today that all peoples from all nations are to enjoy and exalt god in his glory forever so that's kind of what the book of revelation is all about before we get to chapter 14 i want to kind of walk us through a couple of chapters before that so maybe if you've got your bible you want to actually turn to revelation chapter 12. i'm not going to read any of the verses from revelation 12 but i'm gonna give you a synopsis or a reminder of what chapter 12 is about in chapter 12 we have some some symbolic language like we do all throughout the book of revelation and in chapter 12 we see a woman who gives birth to a son and then we see a dragon that comes to try to devour that son. And then we see that when he's unsuccessful in devouring the son, he begins to to chase the woman. He, he begins to attack her and, and her other children. So let's look at what each of those pieces are. The woman represents the people of God. The son that's born, it doesn't represent, but it is Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, Christ himself, and then the third part is the dragon, and we see that the dragon represents Satan. You you can look down at verse 9 in chapter 12, and you'll see that it clearly tells us who the dragon is. And so the, the picture that is painted here in chapter 12 is that Satan is continually trying to attack God's plans. Think about all throughout the Old Testament. Think about in the New Testament over and over and over again how Satan is trying to thwart or disrupt the plans of God. But here's a newsflash. No one and nothing can ever thwart God's plans. And whenever it describes this idea that, 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 that the, the, the dragon or Satan is trying to devour the woman's son, the, the Messiah, the Christ, I think of two perfect examples where that takes place. One is when he literally was a baby, and the other is a little bit later. Remember in the, the Gospels, we see that after Jesus is born, the wise men come to Herod, who is the king, and said, where is this king, the king of the Jews that we're to worship? Herod doesn't like that. He's the king. Nobody else is. And so Herod finds out, oh, this king that was born was born in Bethlehem. He was born sometime within the last two years. Do you remember what Herod did? He sent someone to kill all of the two-year-old boys and younger in the city of Bethlehem in hopes that he would kill the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. So there is a perfect example where Satan is trying to literally kill... Jesus. And then the other place where Satan thinks he wins is at the cross, right? Jesus is on the cross, he's being crucified, then he's put dead and buried in a grave, and Satan thinks he has the victory. But what happens three days later? Jesus is resurrected. But time and time again, Satan is trying to attack God's plans. In chapter 12, it says, once he's not successful devouring the Son, what does he do? He chases the woman. He attacks the woman. He attacks her offspring. So here's the deal. Satan is always attacking God's church. He's always attacking those of us who are part of God's church. It's seen in our own lives, and it's prophesied and told here in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. So, we move to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we have the dragon, or Satan, calling for help, and he calls for help from two beasts. Uh, You probably have heard of the beasts. There's actually two of them, and they're both mentioned in chapter 13. I want us to look briefly at who these beasts are so that when we get to chapter 14, we'll understand it a little bit better. In the first half of chapter 13, we see the first beast, and he's described, and we see that this beast is a worldly power. And in this particular case, when John is writing it, the worldly power that was in place was the Roman Empire. Uh, The Roman Empire was a a totalitarian government. And so so John is specifically thinking of the Roman Empire, but the reality is all throughout history, from when Jesus was raised from the dead to when he's coming back again, over and over and over and over again, we have repetitive natures of different worldly powers similar to, uh, to, to, to Rome that come into play. And so here, the beast represents, the first one represents worldly power. The second one, <clears throat> the second beast in the second part of chapter 13 represents false religion. You may even notice that when it begins to describe the beast, it almost sounds like the lamb at first. It almost sounds like he, he's the lamb of God. And then you realize, oh no, wait a minute. This is something much different than the lamb of God. In other words, this beast False religion tries to imitate the Lamb of God in order to lead people astray. So throughout history, from the time that Jesus was resurrected till when Jesus comes back, over and over and over again, we see worldly power that tries to disrupt God's plan. And we also see all kinds of false religions and false teachings that try to steer us in the wrong direction. Satan uses both of these things. And then one of the most famous parts of all of the book of Revelation is the mark of the beast, right? 666. We're not going to have time to really tackle this one very much, but look down in verse 16 of chapter 13, and you'll see that the mark of the beast is mentioned, and it's mentioned that they have the mark either on their right hand or their forehead. This reminds me of phylacteries. I don't know if you know what a phylactery is or not, and so maybe uh, to help us kind of remind ourselves, I've got a picture on the screen. This is a group of Jewish people in modern days, you can see, and they are at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Sometimes we call it the Wailing Wall, but the best way to refer to it is the Western Wall of the Old Temple, and they are there worshiping God in their Jewish faith and you'll see that they've got something strapped on their forehead you see that box on their head and then you see the leather straps that are bound around their arm and so with both of those those are in reference to phylacteries and those phylacteries have inside that little box that little leather pouch written words from the Torah or the commandments of God that they have that they have bound on their head and their arms you're like what is all of that about glad you asked Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8 God tells the people you shall bind them and the binding them is his commandments you're to bind my commandments as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes And so whenever in the book of Revelation, we see that the mark of the beast is either put on the hand or on the forehead, we're reminded of the phylacteries because the purpose of the phylacteries was to indicate, I am focused on the word of God and staying true to his word and following him in my allegiance. All that I have is to God. And it's obvious. It's right there in the middle of your forehead. You can see that phylactery. Sometimes people would end up wearing them in a boastful kind of way, but it was intended to just indicate this person is following God. Well, whatever you take the mark of the beast is an indication this person is not following God. This person is following everything contrary to what God stands for. Here, here's something interesting. We focus all too often on the mark of the beast, which is an important part of the book of Revelation. But did you know that there is a corresponding mark that you do want? Because we see in Scripture, in Revelation, that there is a mark or a seal of God on the believer's foreheads. You can find that back in Revelation 7, 3. You can jot that down if you want to. But I want to read the second place where we see it mentioned, and that's at the beginning of chapter 14. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 1. It references the 144,000. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the 144,000 represents all of God's people of all the ages that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. These are believers in the presence of God in their re- rewarded place of heaven in presence of God. Here's the believers of God standing before him, and it says, what about the 144,000? It says 144,000 who had his name, talking about the lamb, had his name and his father's name written where? On their foreheads. So there's actually two marks that we see in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast and the mark of the lamb. Let me just say to you, you do not want the mark of the beast. You want the mark of the lamb. Now, is this a literal mark on the forehead, like written or tattooed on your head? Perhaps. I don't necessarily think that it is meant to be a literal mark, but at the very basic level it's for sure whether it's a literal mark or not it's a it's for sure symbolic of a desire that we are declaring where our allegiance is so if you have the mark of the beast that means your allegiance is to everything contrary to god's plans if you have the mark of the Lamb, that means you have allegiance to jesus christ and so as we look at the rest of chapter 14, we need to keep these things in mind. Chapter 14 shifts from the earth, which is kind of where the conversation is in chapter 13, and now we're back in the throne room of God. So I want us to look at chapter 14 together, and we're going to see that here, the people of God who have not defiled themselves by worshiping false gods are now worshiping the one true God in his very presence. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. Here's what it says. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And here's what the angel said with a loud voice. Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And then another angel, a second one, followed. Saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of his, her, her sexual immorality. And then a third angel in verse 9. This third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, there's reference to the beasts and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Then he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, to get to the good news, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and and their faith in Jesus and I heard a voice from heaven saying write this blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on blessed indeed says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them so Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 to 13 we have the, the 144,000 in the presence of God at the throne room and then all of a sudden God sends Three messengers, three angels, and all three of these angels have different messages that are actually very much connected that they share with the people. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but in these three messages, we see kind of compare and contrast a couple of of things. We see both blessing and we see cursing. We see both the gospel of salvation, but also the gospel of judgment. Judgment we see encouragement but we also see warning and all of this all of this is in order to display god's glory so i want us to see this morning that god's glory can be exhibited and is exhibited both in the, the 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 punishments that are described here as well as the rewards that are described here i want us to look at the three messages we'll look at each one One at a time. So there on your notes, the first note says this, that all peoples are called to glorify God. That message is found in verses 6 and 7. All peoples are called to glorify God. This morning we're going to walk through kind of different uh, sections or or statements under each of these. And so just look there, follow along with me in verse 6, and you'll see that he describes an eternal gospel. What is meant by eternal gospel? To say something is eternal, to say the gospel is eternal, that means it is always true. It is always true and it is everlasting. It's always true and it's always good news. And so in this setting, we see that this is good news of the one who was and who is and who is to come. So it just makes sense that the one who is eternal has a message that is likewise eternal. I think it's important for us to see that the gospel is eternal. Gospel doesn't just bring your salvation, but rather the gospel helps you grow in your faith and understanding of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just some elementary thing that we learn, and once we say yes to Jesus, we leave the gospel behind and press on to the bigger more important stuff. No, the gospel is eternal, and the very thing that saves us is the very thing that grows us in our faith as well. And this gospel message is not just something that's true in the here and now, it's always been true and always will be true. It's always been God's plan, In fact, it's God's only plan for salvation is the gospel. So what is this gospel? What is this good news? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that regardless of the fact that all of us are sinners, regardless of the fact that all of us are in open rebellion against God, regardless of the fact that this open rebellion against God separates us for all eternity from a holy, perfect God, he has a solution for us to our sin problem. And that good news is that Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One, came to live a perfect life, the life that you and I can never live in order that we might experience forgiveness of our sins. How is that? Because you and I cannot live up to the glory or standards of God, we deserve eternal separation from God. But because Jesus lived a life that was perfect, he was able to die in our place. He became our substitute. He took our punishment. But he didn't just die and stay in a tomb, but rather three days later he was raised to new life. And because he died for our sins, taking the punishment for our sins, and was raised on the third day, if we will place our faith and our trust in him, then we can experience forgiveness of our sins. And so this is the eternal gospel that has always been true and always will be true. And as followers of Jesus, we must do the very thing this this angel does and proclaim this gospel message to everyone. So I've got a question for you. Two questions. First, have you trusted in this gospel? Or are you trusting in your own good works? anything you trust in besides the gospel good news of Jesus Christ is void it's useless will you trust in Jesus and him alone today and if you have placed your faith and your trust in him will you take this gospel message to everyone around you because you see this message is not just for us Keep reading in verse 6. Not only it says that there's an eternal gospel to proclaim, it says that it's to be proclaimed to every nation and tribe and language and people. Last week we said that this is said seven different times in the book of Revelation. God's message always has been, it's always will be for people of all nations and tribes and languages. It's to be proclaimed to everyone. Who should we proclaim it to? Here's some examples of who should hear the message of the gospel. Muslims on the Arab Peninsula, Buddhists of Southeast Asia, Hindus in India, atheists in Europe, the good old boy in your neighborhood. Everyone needs to hear the gospel message. So will we take it around the world? I want you to hear something with the gospel message. And I want you to hear the full statement. The gospel is both inclusive and exclusive. Let me explain that. The gospel is inclusive because it is available to every single person. Doesn't matter where you were raised, doesn't matter what your background is, God loves you and wants you to come to faith in Jesus. So therefore, it is inclusive, but you better be careful because this doesn't stay there. Inclusive would indicate that everybody is automatically saved and that's not the truth. While it is inclusive and intended for everyone, it is exclusive because only those who trust in Jesus will receive salvation. So it's our job, it's our task, it's our responsibility, it's our privilege to go out and share the gospel with everyone hoping that God will bring salvation, knowing that he will bring salvation to some. There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. It's the only saving message, but as we described last week, many, many people in our world have never heard it. Did you know that there's a little over, or actually almost 8 billion people in the world, there's 7.8 billion people or so in the world, and of that 7.8 billion, about 40% of the world, or 3 billion, live in unreached people groups where they have no access to the gospel. It's our job, it's our responsibility to get the message out to others. So there's a couple of ways They're both actually in the worship guide this week that I would point you to, that you can be a part of getting the gospel out to all peoples of all nations and tribes and languages. Here's one. We're helping serve the BSM, or Baptist Student Ministry, Thanksgiving meal to the international students, and that's coming up this Friday. I was at the BSM this week as we served another meal, and there were hundreds of students there. There'll be even more coming up this Friday, and they will be from all over the globe, and you can come and help make food, serve the food, have conversations, talk about Jesus, talk about American culture, build bridges, all of these things for the sake of the gospel, the eternal gospel. If you're interested in doing that, today when we dismiss, there's a registration table right out there. You can sign up. You can also go online or on our church app, and you can sign up there. So that's one way you can be a part of getting the gospel to everyone. Here's another way. You may have seen on the insert, there's a a class coming up called Perspectives. And Perspectives is happening in the month of January, February, March, April, and finishes the first week of May. It's happening on Monday nights. All the details are there in your worship guide, but it's happening on Monday nights. And it's a group of churches and ministries all over the city that's doing it. We've been a part of it the last several years. We're being a part of it again this year. And the host location happens to be Grace Bible Church. I encourage you to come sign up for that class because you will hear all about God's glory for the nations and how you will be challenged to share that gospel with others around you. Your life will be eternally, as well as other people's lives, eternally impacted by participating in Perspectives. My family and I have had a chance to do it over the last couple of years. You don't want to miss out on it. So go to their website, Perspectives.org, and or catch me or our equipping pastor, David Hutton. We would love to tell you more and more about it. If you know Callie Bearden, she's not heading it up this year, but she has in previous years, she would love to tell you about it as well. So we have an eternal gospel, and that eternal gospel is meant to be shared with all people. Look further down in verse 7. It says that part of this gospel is fearing God and giving him glory. This is the purpose for all mankind. God is sovereign. God is creator. God is above all. He is the one true person or being, I should say, that is worthy of our worship. So our lives should be all about his glory, his honor, and his fame. And then he finishes out this idea that all peoples are to be uh, called to glorify God. And he says, for this very reason, look at the end of verse seven, because the hour of God's judgment has come. We're going to look more about that judgment in just a few minutes. But let's first of all, consider that there is a limited time to respond to the gospel because judgment is coming. Before we move on to the next point, I want us to see that with the gospel, we must have a balanced view of the gospel. Yes, the gospel is about God's love, but it's also about God's wrath. Yes, the gospel is about salvation, but it's also about judgment. So what are you gonna do with this concept of all peoples are called to glorify God? Number one, you can respond to God trusting in the gospel fearing him and worshiping him alone. And then secondly, if you're a follower of Jesus, commit your life to glorifying God by making disciples of all nations. So that's the first message. Now let's look at the next message. It's found in verse eight. Revelation chapter 14, verse eight, it says that another angel comes and says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And so I have on your notes that God will destroy this godless worldly system. Let me walk through each kind of phrase in verse 8. First, it says Babylon the Great. What's all of this about Babylon the Great? Why is Babylon mentioned in the book of Revelation? I mean, Babylon is kind of where modern-day Persia is. What is all of this about? Babylon it was a symbol... Of Sorry, the reference of Babylon in the book of Revelation is more than just about the geographic location. It's a symbol of something more than Babylon. But let's think for a minute historically. Babylon was Israel's enemy. And Babylon fell in the year 539 BC. So almost 600 years later, John is writing this revelation of god of jesus christ and it says that babylon has fallen as if it hasn't quite yet happened and and so why, why if babylon the historical place is already fallen why is it mentioned here because in the book of revelation babylon is symbolic and it's a symbol or language actually, that points to another enemy of Israel, and that's Rome. So historically speaking, when John wrote this, whenever he writes Babylon, one of the things he's thinking about is Rome, because just as Babylon was a great power that was against God, Rome is in his day a power that's against God. But the reality is that every time Babylon or Rome is mentioned along those lines, it's simply a foreshadow of many other nations and governments and peoples that go against god in other words babylon is a symbol of a godless city or power that would come over and over and over and over throughout history doesn't matter when you live you can always read this passage and go oh that must be talking about such and such Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't, because all throughout history, there's a repetitive cycle of godless powers coming under, in, into power, leading God's people astray. So Satan uses these political powers to cause people to reject God. Now, I want us to keep looking in verse 8. It says that, that, that Babylon the Great is mentioned. It says that she is the one who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. When you read sexual immorality here, yes, it is in reference to sexual immorality, but it's actually in reference to more than that. This is code language or symbolic to indicate any kind of immorality, spiritual, not just physical. You see, God, uh, Sorry, Satan uses the godless systems to encourage us to worship false gods. So that's why judgment is coming to Babylon in this verse. And then it says that it's fallen, fallen, it's repeated twice. It's the idea of being under judgment or condemnation. It says that Babylon is going to be ruined or destroyed. In other words, the sin and evil that is represented in worldly powers, God says he is overthrowing those powers be careful this is not about god coming in and setting up an earthly kingdom rather it's about his kingdom and how he overthrows the worldly power that's in place i love the fact that it says fallen fallen is as if it's already happened and yet you have to turn the pages to roman uh, sorry revelation 17 and 18 before it actually takes place and so when this is recorded the fall has not yet happened and yet it's spoken with such certainty because when god says it it happens So when does Babylon, when does worldly power fall? I have some bad news. It doesn't fall until the second coming of Christ. We will always be battling worldly power that wants to lead us astray. But as we battle against that, there is confidence knowing that he God is winning the battle. He is bringing the victory. That the destruction of the worldly system is certain. It's as if it has already happened, so keep fighting for the cause of God. You see, worldly powers that are evil have an impact on us today, but it is defeated by God, so trust Him to lead you. So here, in my second point, we said, that God is going to destroy this godless, worldly system that we live in. So how do I apply that step? A couple of things here. First of all, I want you to see that verse 8 is a form of a call to repentance for all of us. How are you personally being impacted by the evil around you? God says, get out while it's time to get out. Destruction and doom is coming to Babylon. Don't subject yourself to that same punishment. Flee from Babylon. Free from the share in her doom. Repent of your sin. And when you repent of your sin, pursue God faithfully. So here's my question for you this morning. The Bible talks about how we are to be in the world but not of the world. The Bible talks here in Revelation how that ultimately the victory is coming and Babylon will be destroyed. But my question is, are we, are you living in such a way that it appears that you're okay living in the thick of the worldly way of doing things? Is there a sin in your life that you need to repent of? Are you chasing after worldly dreams and missing out on all that God has for you. I know what some of us are thinking, but Alan, it says here that, that, that Babylon is, is leading the nations astray because of, of the passion of her sexual immorality. And you're like, dude, I don't have sexual immorality in my life right now. I, I, I don't have that. But the reality is if we're not careful, other things that we are more permissive of and think is okay begin to flood into our lives and, and, and greed and gossip and hatred and bitterness... This unity, all of those things can flood into our lives. What I'm not doing is calling you Babylon. But what I am saying is that all of us, if we're not careful, fall into a trap of repeating a worldly way of living life. I think that this is a radical call to us to repent of our sins. So I encourage you, I'm not done with my message yet, but I would encourage you, in, in just a minute, whenever we have a time of response, if there's a sin in your life that you need to repent of, come and use these steps and, and, and confess those to God. Now, what you need to hear and the rest of us need to hear is we don't need to see somebody come up here and go, Oh, I knew it. I knew it. That boy is a sinner through and through. There he is. He's on his knees. He's a horrible, wicked sinner. I'm glad I'm not that guy. Newsflash, you're the one that needs to be up here. <laughs> so these steps are not about saying, These steps are only for the worst of sinners. No, the reality is it's for all of us. All of us need to repent. Where's God calling you to repent in your life? Let's look at the third message. The third angel in verses 9 through 11, it's the longest section of a message from the angels. We see on my sermon notes, those who reject God will experience his full wrath. So we started off by saying that all people are to glorify God. But then we saw that worldly systems come in the way and and lead us astray. But God's going to destroy those worldly systems. And then this last one says that punishment or wrath is coming for those who reject God. Look with me in verse 9. It makes reference that if anyone worships the beast and its image and gets the mark on their forehead, then this wrath or judgment is coming to them. Remember what we said a moment ago about worshiping the beast. Remember what we said about the, the, the mark of the beast. Remember what we said about if you had the mark on your forehead. It may or may not be a literal mark. It may or may not be a, a literal tattoo. But the reality is this. It indicates the reality of your heart. And that is a, an allegiance to Satan. And so those who will experience the wrath of God are not those who have the seal of the Lord's name on their, heart, uh, on their, on their head, not the 144,000, but rather those who go contrary to God's wishes and plans and those who align with Satan. It, let me explain something real quick. Aligning with Satan does not mean that you are a member of, uh, of the church of Satan and you're the most sat- satanic person ever. Rather, aligning with Satan means You haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Did you know that people who align with Satan could be some of the most moral and ethical people there are? But if they've not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, then they align with Satan. If you're not on Jesus' team, then you are aligning with Satan. Does that make sense? So don't just go, okay, I'm not a horrible, despicable person, so that doesn't apply to me. No, there are very good people in this room that haven't placed their faith and trust in Jesus, and you are aligned with Satan. You have the mark of the beast on you, and here's what it says. It says that God's wrath is going to be poured out. Look on further. I think it's there in verse 10. It talks about drinking the wine of God's wrath. It says a a cup of his anger. It it, it makes reference to, to a cup of anger or a cup of wrath. All throughout Scripture, we, we see this terminology used, that, that God's wrath is going to be spilled out of a, of a, of a cup that he has on those who, who are recipients of, of his anger or his, his wrath. Wait a minute, I thought God was all love. Why is he pouring out anger on anyone? Why is he wrathful against anyone? Because God is offended by our rebellion of sin against him, and he must not leave sin unpunished. Now remember, guys, as I'm saying this, the good news is that Jesus Christ brings salvation, you don't have to experience the wrath of God. But if you've not trusted in Jesus for salvation, it says that the wrath of God will be poured out because the wrath of God is his holy response to sin and evil that's in opposition to him. Let's think for just a minute about the wrath of God and where the wrath of God was poured out and who drank, The wrath of God. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is getting ready to be arrested. Look with me at Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Jesus is praying and he's saying, God, I'm about to come, my Father, I'm about to come and be crucified. But if there's a way out, let's let's take that other way out. But if there's not a way, may I live out your will. Matthew 26, 39 is the words of Jesus. It says, My Father, if it be possible, Let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of the wrath of God. You see, the reason that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to remove my sin is because he first of all had to receive the full wrath of God as the punishment of sin, and he willingly drank the wrath of God and was raised on the third day so that you and I don't have to experience the wrath of God. Thankfully, Jesus drank The whole cup of the full fury of God's wrath and justice against sin. Let's keep looking in Revelation chapter 14. It says that that those who have the mark of the beast will drink the wrath of of God. And it says that they'll drink, uh, in verse 10, the full strength. It's undiluted. There's no mercy. God is holy. Holy. God can have nothing to do with sin, and so all sin must be judged. Keep reading the good news. It doesn't sound very good here, right? Keep reading in verse 10. It says, and he, the one who has the mark of the beast, will be tormented. Verse 11, the torment goes up forever and ever. Do you know another word for torment? Torture. And neither one of those words sound very pleasing to me. I'm not wanting to make light of it. I'm wanting to be serious for a moment that here is God saying that those who have the mark of the beast, those who have rejected him, are going to experience God's wrath, and as a result of God's wrath, they will be tormented and tortured. There's nothing pretty about this picture. But it is to be expected from a holy God who can have nothing to do with sin. I also want us to be really careful here. The suffering here seems to indicate physical pain, but the biggest pain or the biggest suffering as it relates to the wrath of God has very little to do with physical suffering, and it has everything to do with spiritual suffering by being separated eternally from the presence of God. Let's keep going through. It says in verse 10, that it, or actually verse 11, it goes on forever and ever. This is an unlimited duration of time, always, eternally. Hell is a conscious punishment that is ongoing for all of eternity. I know what all of us are thinking. How can that be fair? I mean, I'm going to live probably 100 years or less. And how is it fair that if I have the mark of the beast that I have it for 100 years or less and then I spend an eternity in a horrible place called hell? It doesn't sound fair. But the reality is that God is the infinite one. He is the sovereign one. And refusing to worship him in his infinity for who he is in all of his glory is an infinite crime for which there is an infinite punishment. Let's keep reading. In verse 11 it says they have no rest. There's no relief. There's no respite. It goes on forever and ever and ever. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this message that this angel shares? That the wrath of God will be poured out on those who have the mark of the beast. I have a couple of things that you can apply in this text. The first one is this. I plead with you and encourage you to trust in the eternal gospel of God. Because if you'll trust in the eternal gospel of God, you will be delivered from the eternal wrath of God. Remember verse 6 says the eternal gospel the eternal gospel is sufficient to save us from an eternity of wrath against, uh, that's poured out on us from God. The second application I would give you is this. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, if we believe these words are true, if we believe there is an eternal wrath from God, how can we sit still and not go tell others about Jesus? Because either it's true or it's not. If it's true and we're a follower of Jesus, this is not a guilt-driven statement, but if we are followers of Jesus, we should be compelled to go and tell others. So we have these three messages from these angels. We see that there is an eternal uh, gospel and because of that, all people are to glorify God. We see that God's gonna destroy the godless, worldly system that's around us and we see that those who reject God will experience his full wrath. Let's get to the best news of all. It's found in verses 12 and 13, and on your notes it says this, that followers of Jesus can endure this life that we live knowing they will experience God's rest and blessing. I want us to pause for just a minute. Do you know who the audience was in the book of Revelation? The audience is believers. So John is not writing to a bunch of unbelievers, and here he is talking about what happens to unbelievers and how there's going to be punishment and how the wrath of God's coming and how the worldly systems are against us and all of this, but yet he's writing to believers, and so he sums up this whole section to say this is what it's all about. He says in verse 12, this is a call for endurance of the saints, those who are followers of Jesus, those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. So John calls us and challenges us. God challenging, challenges us, those of us that are followers of his, that we would see that we can and will continue to endure even in the midst of this evil world we live in. See, this world is fiercely opposed to us that are followers of Jesus, but thank God this is not our home. You ever wonder why sometimes Songs like, and I'm maybe showing my age, although this is a great song. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. You know that song, right? Why do we like songs like that? Because it worships God, and we point to the fact that we are going to spend eternity with him, and one day, very soon, we get to leave this dusty, filthy, dirty, evil world behind. And the older I get the more I see that is a very good thing. So this world is opposed to us. But we're just passing through. And if we remember that, it helps us to endure. As you probably have heard me talk about lately, I've been doing some running. And, uh, and I enjoy it to a degree, and, and to another degree I don't. Almost never fails at the first time I start running within the first 30 seconds. I kid you not, within the first 30 seconds, I think, What am I doing? I can't do this. I'm already tired. Mari, out of breath. Now that could be a problem. I might have started at too strong of a pace. But even at a good pace, I still think that. And typically for the first mile, I'm thinking it the whole way through. If I did what my mind tells me if, if, if my mind respond if my body there we go if my body responded to my mind I would never run more than a mile never this week I was running uh what day was that I don't remember Saturday yesterday I ran eight miles but when I ran seven on Wednesday I guarantee you I thought I was going to die and then I get done with the seven guess what best time I'd run ever all right all this to say not Alan is a runner and how great is that Rather, it's to say that as I run, I see that I can endure more than I think I can endure. And I can keep pressing forward. Now, in our life with Jesus, we can endure more than we think we can. Not in our own power and our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can endure. When life gets pretty crummy at times, when persecution comes our way, when difficulty hits and we don't know why it's happening to me, we can and must persevere and endure because... God is faithful, and He'll guide us through whatever we're facing in life. Keep pressing, follow Jesus, don't give in, allow Him to give you strength and endurance Here, Here's a description of those who endure. It says in verse into verse twelve they keep the commands, and their faith is in Jesus. Our faithfulness to God demonstrates that we are truly his our obedience our, our deeds our actions reflect who we really are this past week i had a chance to sit in the home of one of our uh, church members a dear friend of mine ron and we were talking about this passage of scripture not realizing i was actually going to be preaching this text this morning and we talked about how it's worded in an unusual way a blessing that is described. Look down in verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That's like, do what? How is it a blessing to die? Especially if you're young or you're in good shape or good health or you have children in your home or whatever. How could it be said that dying is a blessing? What I think John is saying here is this, that we are truly blessed when we die in the Lord because when we die in the Lord, we get to be in the very presence of God. We get to be in the throne room. The things we're reading about in the book of Revelation, we get to experience with our very eyes and our very ears. What a blessing that will be. Look further in verse 13, and after he says write that it's a blessing, Then it says the Spirit responds. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. So here we are in Revelation 6, uh, sorry, chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. We see the Trinity show up again. We've seen the Father already. We've seen the Lamb or the Son uh, Son of, of God, Jesus himself. And in this scenario, we see the Spirit speaking up. It's the triune God that's responding to what's going on in our life. And he says that death is a blessing because even though death is a last enemy in life, it's also a friend for those who die in the Lord. We have to leave the struggles of this world behind. We have to go and be with God in heaven. And additionally, it's a blessing because you don't have to suffer the wrath of God that we read about just a few verses earlier. So we can have endurance. Because when we die, it's actually a blessing. It says there in, in verse uh, end of verse 13 that we'll have rest from our labors. Do you remember what it said about those who face the wrath of God? There would be no rest. This is the complete opposite. Those who worship the beast have no rest. Those who worship the lamb experience full, complete rest in him. Life on earth is a battle, but it won't last forever. So persevere and enjoy rest, comfort, and peace in the very presence of God. And then he finishes by saying that our deeds will follow us. Here's not what he's saying. He's not saying that our deeds save us, but rather our deeds testify that we truly belong to him. And in this case, it testifies that we belong to God and that our rest is warranted. Here's a couple of applications. Number one. You can endure, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can endure all the difficulties of life knowing that these difficulties are overcome by Jesus' resurrection power. And just as he will one day allow you to permanently rest in him, you can rest in him today as well. If there's something I've learned over the last week or two or three If there's something that I've learned over the last month or two, is that many of us are just worn out. Some of us are worn out by COVID and all that it has brought to our world, others of us are worn out because of health conditions we're facing. Others of us are worn out because of spiritual battles we're dealing with. uh, Some of us are battling with wounds that we've had for a decade or longer.
1: Got a real good friend, happens
0: to be sitting really close to me right now, and he has always told me, Alan, everyone has a story. I challenge us as a church family that in our interactions with one another, that we love one another well enough that we will give each other the benefit of the doubt and that we will do our best to understand where that pain and hurt and that tired feeling is coming from so that we can love and serve one another well. This whole COVID season either allows us to clearly display the mark of the lamb or to display the mark of the beast. And here's what I mean by that. God intends to use this season to prune and grow his church, and I'm not talking about just living hope, I'm talking about the church, to prune and grow his church and to bring unity and love, to to support one another, to uphold each other, to do ministry, to share the gospel around the world. But while God intends to do that very thing, Satan wants to twist and turn it and make it into the most divisive, difficult, disorderly thing ever. And my question is, are you Am I, are we as a church family going to respond showing that our allegiance is to the Lamb? Or are we gonna display something different? And the good news is that wherever you find yourself today, just as rest is promised in eternity with God rest can be experienced in the here and now so rest in Jesus and right along that with that no matter what the world throws at you keep persevering don't lose heart keep on going We have an eternal gospel to proclaim to the world. God's calling us to do that. We have sin in our life. God's calling us to repent of that sin. We're living in a difficult time, in a difficult season, in a difficult world, and God's calling us to rest in him. There is hope. Because we worship an eternal God who has an eternal message of good news called his gospel. Let's boldly proclaim it. Let's boldly live it out with one another. Let me pray for us.